So today is very important. We're talking about the world reserve currency of today, which is the US dollar. Um, we're gonna go over a brief history of the US dollar and uh, world reserve currencies in general, like what is a world reserve currency, um, how important is it, and then what happened to other nations when they lost their world reserve currency status uh, and they fell as many empires have in the past. So if you're interested in learning more about this, we can. Uh, you can also see my Substack, which can be found uh, on Matrix Breakers newsletter. The Substack I have currently is is titled exactly that: the end of the U.S. dollar supremacy. Uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot about supremacy, right? Race supremacy and all these other things. But like the U.S. dollar has a level of supremacy, and that's why I said that it's the end of their supremacy. And if you know anything about the U.S. dollar and the world reserve currency, you know that it is essentially uh, the number one foreign policy tool that America has today. So. Just briefly, let's go over how did we get the world reserve currency? Uh, well, uh, the US dollar has been the world reserve currency since 1945 when the Bretton Woods Agreement, which is what, which was in Bretton Woods, New Jersey, uh, this is, was signed uh, by 44 countries. Uh, the US dollar was backed by the gold reserves uh, that these countries would store in America for safekeeping. This was following the immediate aftermath of World War II and Europe at the time was completely devastated and had very little finances left to hold up the world financial system because just prior to the world reserve currency belonging to the United States, England had the world reserve currency. So we're gonna, we're gonna go over all that right now. So a very important thing here is that America came into World War II at a very strong position. Um, we weren't supposed to fight in World War II at all, but because of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, we declared war on Japan. And ironically enough, that was our only fight, was because we were attacked. And why were we attacked? Very important information right now I'm about to share. We were attacked by Japan because of the oil embargo we imposed on the Japanese. This was a form of our own sanctions. We did not have the power of fiat currency sanctions that we do today. But when we decided not to ship our oil to Japan, we halted all oil shipments to Japan. Japan realized that that was so devastating that it was an act of war. So they, in their history books, see our sanction of oil on Japan, not being able to send them any oil, was an act of war. And it's interesting that we look at it that way because, you know, the Japanese had no oil reserves. They were trying to take on different islands and things, but they didn't have oil. And this is why they were going in uh, and, and making attempts in Australia and the Philippines and then China and the war in China. And uh, were even trying to do backroom deals with the Russians to get their oil. But when we, d when we had their, you know, embargo uh, in place, it, it angered them so much that they became extremely desperate. They realized that going to war with the United States of America was more was worth more than not having access to oil. Okay, so this is also why they attacked Alaska. Nobody really knows about that, but Alaska is very rich in oil. That's why the Japanese went there and tried to take over certain areas of Alaska. Um, and so there's a lot of things about World War II that happened people don't recognize. So just looking back at today. We put that embargo on, right? And so, uh, like I mentioned, though, United States was there, and then uh, they were very strong when they declared war on Japan, and Germany declared war on the United States after we declared war on Japan. So really, 
the German, the Nazi machine, they declared war on us first. We didn't actually want to go to war in Europe. We had no intentions of doing that. Uh, but once Germany declared war on us, we declared war on them. And so needless to say, um, America turned all of its energy into establishing a dominant military system. We actually didn't have um, a lot of recruits in our army and we didn't really have a huge navy at the time. A lot of things that we did invest in terms of military was very dormant. It wasn't a huge part of our budget. Now remember, this is before we have a world reserve currency status, right? So we were running real budgets in this country. We were we had to actually pay back our debts in this country. We couldn't just you know, uh, create a huge deficit and then have no plan to spend, no plan to make money in the country. We actually were making money in the country. We were a very prosperous nation at the time. So given that situation, um, we grew in terms of our naval strength. Uh, we built carriers, uh, which are aircraft carriers, which were the most significant naval uh, piece to the whole Navy during that time of war to carry airplanes was very important. We had battleships, cruisers, transporters, all the things that are necessary in the Navy. We built and we built them quickly. We used all the material we could use in America. and We built it with American steel, American workers. Everything was built here in America. So we became this production powerhouse is what happened. And so because of the production powerhouse, we were able to grant that access for a world reserve currency status after the war. And so another thing about a world reserve currency you're going to see as a theme here is a world reserve currency status is tied into the status of the Navy of a particular country or empire. So depending on the naval strength will vary as to whether or not they could have the world reserve currency status because the navy of a nation protects their cargo from being attacked by pirates or by other nations like warring nations so with a strong navy if you were able to protect international trade on the high seas if you will that gives you a very um optimistic outlook for a world reserve currency as a nation is it was one of the most important key elements because the world reserve currency status also means that your currency is used equally as an equal medium of exchange around the entire world that your currency whatever currency it was at the time that nation has the ability to have their currency distributed all over the world in terms of reserves and so that brings me to that definition of a world reserve currency. So the reserve part of a world reserve currency is that nations would have to buy bonds or what would be considered dollars or would be considered whatever it is that that particular currency of the, the leading nation at the time and would have to reserve these, these, these dollars or this currency in their storehouses, okay, uh, in their nation in order to do trade with other nations because other nations would accept on an equal playing field whatever was the world reserve currency at the time. So the world reserve is means that the world has your currency, let's say you as a nation, has your currency in reserve, okay? That's what that basically means. And so 
Let's take a look here at the few countries that had the world reserve currency status in the modern day and age. Um, there have been, of course, there's Caesar coins, um, there's Persian uh, golden coins as well uh, that were used in world trade. Um, so I'm not going to go into a huge rich history about currencies and different things. Uh, I'm going to go more into the modern era, uh, which I would say modern era being like the 1400s actually, so not too modern, but more of this sort of recent modern history period of time where the economy of the world was more interconnected uh, and I hate I, I hate to use the word but almost they were it was globalized right so we're gonna only go in terms of when the world was globalized which means connected to each other in a way right uh, and this happened with the Portuguese uh, taking significant control of the Spice Islands. And those Spice Islands were considered the Philippines, the Banda Islands, Thailand, um, and parts of little parts of Vietnam at the time. So all these places and then all of India, right? The, the coast of India. These various areas were, they had um, factories of Portuguese um, goods and services that they would provide to these spice nations and in return they would get spices and during this time period uh for example nutmeg uh, the nutmeg you find in your cabinet right now in your kitchen was worth more per ounce than gold during the 14 and 1500s it was these spices were considered so valuable they were more valuable than gold and so when portugal had all this control over the naval um, the, the age of exploration is what we're going to call this. This is kind of well, what, it's, what it's called in terms of history. The, the age of exploration found that the Portuguese were the best navigators. They were able to successfully go around Africa and into these spice islands, set up these bases, set up these factories, and then produce stuff and have it shipped back to Europe. And so because of that, the Portuguese became the strongest nation in Europe. They had all the wealth you could possibly have. They had the trade routes down. They had the military prowess. They had the naval uh, prowess. They had everything that you need for a world reserve currency. So the world reserve currency belonged to Portugal as of from the years of 1450 to 1530. That was about 80 years. And notice how that is almost in, uh, exactly like us. We got the world reserve currency in 1945 close to this 1450 era time, like if you think of the years and the, the span of time. We got it in 1945 and it is currently 2022. Uh, whereas Portugal had it for 80 years from 1450 to 1530. So imagine in 2030, we're kind of cusping that same pattern of what tends to happen in world reserve currencies where they get changed. You know, geopolitics changes in 80 years or 100 years, right? Changes around. Different different, uh, different nations start to become stronger. Different nat nations become weaker. And this is what happens over time. So this is where the Portuguese were very strong. Um, then Spain attained the world reserve currency through the founding of the New World. So uh, when... Columbus and really more, more importantly Magellan. So Magellan was able to circumnavigate the 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 new world uh, and able to return back, right? So this was very very important. So you had a couple things going on here. Uh, you had in the later 1400s, 1480, 1496, I believe, was the essential founding of the new world. Uh, that was the Columbus story and him being in Central uh, the Caribbean and then in Central America 
founding this new world, right? Establishing new Spain, right? Well, that was big and awesome. Well, the king, this the Spanish king was so enthralled with the new world, he he was convinced by people like Magellan and other people who were topography experts and ge geographical experts and map makers and things. They thought that the world was indeed spherical. It wasn't a flat world. You weren't going to drop off the end of the world, right? Uh, and so P Magellan was somebody who was convinced of this, that there was a way around the tip of South America, which was brand new at the time. So they, all they knew was that it kept going south. They didn't know where it led or what, what happened after you went around it. But eventually, of course, Magellan's exploration uh, after the in the 1500s, the early 1500s, proved that you could indeed circumnavigate the world. Now, Magellan didn't make it back. He was killed by Indians in uh, the Philippine Islands uh, because he was trying to convert them to Christianity and all this crazy war broke out there. So he was killed on the journey, but he didn't make it back. But his crew did, and they proved that indeed you could circumnavigate the world. So with all of this being said, the, uh, the Pope during that time as well, I forgot which Pope it was, the Pope granted all of the, uh, the new world to Spain. So with the Pope's blessing, basically, <coughs> Spain would have access to this new world. Of course, you know, the Pope had no idea at the time how large that world would be and how much would actually happen uh, in the future with this new world, right? So that's also really, really significant. And um, that's Spain's situation. So Spain had this, this uh, dominant situation where they had access to the New World and they were mining the silver out of Central and South America. So the Portuguese obviously found Brazil and uh, they had their claim there. Um, and the Portuguese and Spanish were actually becoming closer in their alliance. Uh, and that's what they, essentially Spain, I would say, and, and Portugal kind of had, their currencies weren't too... Uh, at odds with one another. They were actually more of the same. And so that's why Spain did get the world reserve currency in 1530. Uh, but, you know, I would say still the Portuguese currency was still very strong. So I wouldn't say that it was like a collapse of Portuguese empire or anything like that happened. It wasn't really a negative thing on Portugal, but it just was the fact that Spain had this new world and they had access to all the silver. So as you have access, again, this is not a fiat currency system. This is a uh, a coin-based system, or silver coins mainly, uh, but gold and silver was was real and being mined in Central and South America. And that's that access to the to the silver mines in Central and South America was able to provide the King of Spain with all of this wealth. I mean, there were this is where the Pirates of the Caribbean came into being because. Out of Mexico, these Spanish ships and transports and galleons would have to go all the way back to Spain and they had to take a specific route through these different various corridors. And although Spain had control of a lot of the Caribbean, including Cuba and others, there was still like an English little enclave called Jamaica. Jamaica was this English enclave that existed and it was basically a pirate island, okay? The modern pirate uh concept is based off of the japan uh, the japanese um the jamaican island okay that that jamaica is literally the pirate's cove okay and there's a lot of history there if you're interested in pirate real pirates of the caribbean and stuff and killing and maiming and stealing and 
exploring and just crazy stories. I would say the modern, more modern concept of a democracy was founded with the, uh, the, the brethren, the pirate brethren. Uh, so if you're interested in that kind of history, it's very, very fascinating stuff. Well, the pirates would constantly try and steal the Spanish silver and gold coming out of Mexico and coming out of South America, Colombia at the time, and think, and, 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 um, and uh, modern, I mean, you think of modern day Argentina and Venezuela. These were all countries that were of just the Spanish empire, right? And so these ships would come through there and that would just provide all this wealth right to Spain. I mean, just all the silver and gold, right? And of course, Spain also had the strongest Navy at the time. So that was Spain. Spain had this just control, but you know, with the, the Catholic Pope doing all this stuff, there, there were still the Protestants, right? There was a Protestant reformation during that, uh, that period of time as well. And so Protestants broke away from the Catholic faith. They said that they don't want to follow the hierarchy of the Catholic Church anymore. They didn't believe that was the true, you know, biblical terminology that was being in existence of the New Testament. I'm not going to get into all of that today, but that's why you have the Dutch and the British sort of aligning, you would say the Netherlands, okay? Uh, and this is what happened next, right? So in the 1630s, the Spanish were dethroned, okay, uh, in terms of the currency, the world reserve currency status. The Dutch started to dominate the world reserve currency, and it was mainly through a very well-known company to historians called the Dutch East India Trading Company, okay? Uh, the Dutch East India Trading Company was the first multinational company. If you really want to take a look at the uh, kind of wealth that the Dutch East India Trading Company had, it was over $7.5 trillion dollars in today's currency just to give you an example of uh, of a comparison between another company apple is worth about 800 billion dollars today right so a very large company I would say the largest company in the world i mean i would say amazon is rivaling that but nothing is worth a trillion dollars one trillion dollar company that's pretty big now of course there's a bunch of central bankers that say they're worth trillions of dollars but that was in uh fake fiat currency right central bankers own uh, various fake currencies, but also they own resources and you have uh, massive investment firms like BlackRock, which have $10 trillion worth of assets. Like That's unheard of, by the way. So BlackRock has $10 trillion. So when you think about it though, $7.5 trillion, that is a massive empire. And this is why the Netherlands was were blessed with uh, the world reserve currency. So the Netherlands had the world reserve currency uh, between the years of 1640 and 1720. Once again, it was an 80-year period. So you're finding that this is where we're at in terms of an 80-year period, right? Um, and the the French were the next successors after the Dutch, okay? Uh, by 1720, France had achieved European political dominance. Uh, this is very important as well because Europe, the, the, the political affairs of Europe tend to have consequences around the world, especially because of the vastness of their navies, their armies, and their disputes as well. Um, the fighting and wars alone just in Europe have caused so much devastation, but have equally caused a growth in intellectual property uh, in terms of military strength and power. So really no other nations were constantly at war with one another like the clusterfuck of Europe. And that's what caused them to be stronger because they were able to fight each other. And so no one else around the world could actually put up 
a real fight against any European country. And so anybody who dominated Europe dominated the world reserve currency. And this was during the Napoleonic years as well. So from 1720 to 1815, and at the, leading up from 1800 to 1815, there was the Napoleonic Wars. This was like Napoleon fighting all these other political rivals and uh, neighbors in Europe. And then what eventually happened was they were defeated uh, and there was an ultimatum basically. And it was at the, uh, what was it? The conference called the Congress of Vienna uh, in Europe. And this is when they essentially, they throned um, England with the world reserve currency. So now England had the world reserve currency uh, from 1815, okay? And that's when, up until about 1920, was when England had, you know, the, the world reserve currency. They do say uh, in different history books and stuff that that America really got the world reserve currency in 1920. Um, but, you know, I, I would still just say that that, that just wasn't the case. There, it, was, it wasn't entirely a world reserve currency until the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1945. That's when we really had the world reserve currency. So as of right now, in some places on the internet, in some places in history, it says that we've had a world reserve currency for over 100 years. Uh, but I would argue that no, we've had it for about 70 plus years because it was in Bretton Woods that we genuinely agreed to this, this idea of having the world reserve currency, right? Um, very important historical analysis there. If you notice that there are different elements that happen to create the world reserve currency, a lot of it has to do with wars. Some have it to do with politics, um, and others have to do with random blessings of resources like Spain, right? Finding the new world. So there's a lot of things that do vary in terms of making a world reserve currency. But what does tend to happen when a world reserve currency is, uh, in a country, that nation usually starts to become a little bit more decadent, if we're being honest. Uh, the, the political leaders aren't as strong. The political leaders aren't as, as uh, they don't have that diplomatic prowess that they had in the past. And really, that's what we're seeing with America today, is that our political class is like a spoiled rich child uh, that spends their their family's fortune and doesn't know how to actually make money. They don't know how to actually build wealth the way that their their ancestors did. And I would say, diplomatically speaking and politically speaking, our political ancestors in uh, in America had a diplomatic prowess that is just totally much larger in comparison to today's political class. They just don't have that sense of awareness and and, and that sense of um, how to do diplomacy around the world and then how to manage your own domestic population in that term and, and looking at real economic issues that are plaguing a country and trying to solve them. Because in America we and, and in other nations that have had the world reserve currency status, it is like being blessed by the, the the laws of nature almost economically speaking to be decadent to be lazy because you don't have to do anything it's like saying like the wealth that you were born into you you couldn't spend it all if you tried your whole life right like does that make sense like you it's it's very much like that and that's how we are in America today we are very spoiled but it's not you know it's not a bad thing it's just that we have to acknowledge how spoiled our geopolitical situation is, right? So um, 
We have worked hard to get here, obviously. Um, we've created a huge economy. We are the largest economy in the world. Um, we are the largest consumer nation, which also can be a negative thing in the world. Uh, there's a lot of different things that have set us up this way. And what I'm going to tell you guys is after the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1945, there's a timeline of events, a lot of events, and we will not be able to cover all of them, but a timeline of events that occurred that deteriorated the world reserve status of the US dollar. So that's what we're going to go over now. So in the 1950s, there, uh, this is the baby boom, right? This is after World War II, um, and we have to acknowledge really the prosperity that was brought in by the official world reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar. Uh, now, people's businesses in America were being financed. What happens when you have the world reserve currency? Well, it means that you can have unlimited debt, and you don't have to really pay that off. I'm going to get into the modern monetary theory as well. But what this essentially looks like in the um, domestic population of a country with a world reserve currency status is that bankers are able to loan money a lot easier, having lower interest rates. And there's, a, there's the money supply in a particular nation with the world reserve currency status is just much higher. So you're able to get the mortgage you want. You're able to, to, to start a business that you want because bankers are more easygoing to loan that money to Americans because it was the, the economy was so good. People were so prosperous. People were living great lives at the time. And so that we were, they were able to receive random, uh, amazing financing for all kinds of projects. And this is why businesses blew up, right? We had production here. Everything was domestic. You know, we had uh, things from our cars, our homes, uh, our appliances, and, and various different elements of production were all made in America at this time. So again, during this prosperous era of the world reserve currency status in America early on was extremely beneficial. We were definitely looking at uh, cashing in on this world reserve currency status. And remember, because we were the world reserve currency, this means that trade internationally is done in US dollars. US dollars are seen as an equal medium of an exchange, meaning that it is an agreeable medium of exchange. Uh, one country trading with another, goods and services swapping, you would both do it in US dollar values because that way it says, hey, the US dollar is the world reserve currency and I don't want to trade in your currency or this currency or that currency within a nation because there's these there's devaluing of currencies. There's all these other issues that happen in other countries, just as much as here in America, of course, even though we have the world reserve, but these countries can't trust each other. So the world reserve currency status is a, um, it's a judicial status as well. It's the judge between two nations that come together on an agreeable term. It creates that transaction internationally. So that's why this is very, very important. And, and it's also very important that um, all of us have the ability to uh, create the, the lives that we want in terms of the world reserve currency. But we also have to take care of our own nation, especially on the domestic side and also in the foreign policy side, which is the next point here. Um, when, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, it was 
very, very fascinating to the country for that to happen. But that move, politically speaking, changed the way the country was going to start operating. So now we're, we're not in the 50s anymore. We're in the 60s and the roaring 60s, if you will. And uh, this was just a, a very crazy time, civil uh, civil liberty-wise. Um, you had the civil rights movement. You had so many different things really boiling over here in America. But what was important about the world stage? See, because I'm telling you about things that are happening geopolitically because that's what we're dealing with when we're talking about the world reserve currency. So uh, what happened in terms of the world was we had Lyndon B. Johnson take office, okay? And during this time, we started those proxy wars much heavily, much more heavily uh, than we had in the past. And so proxy wars are basically wars happening in countries where there are major national powers that are funding and even operating the war in those countries. And I would say that for the most part, that was what was experienced in Vietnam. Vietnam was a great example of a country that was experiencing a proxy war. The communist Chinese were heavily involved in the North Korean um, communist sort of regime, okay? And so was the Soviet Union. So when we sent our own troops, which we don't do unless it's a big deal, when we sent our own troops there in Vietnam, it was a, a lot to deal with, uh, a lot to do with the drug trade, actually, and the CIA trying to overthrow certain elements of the Vietnamese um, because of the poppy and the different the the different heroin and drugs that are actually grown in Vietnam. Believe it or not, there's there's some real crazy history to the Vietnam War that people don't really understand. Um, a lot of people just see the Vietnam War as, as a war that America did not want. And it's so true. And the CIA was heavily involved in making sure that we did go to war in Vietnam. So this began the concept really of sanctioning uh, other nations uh, who veered away from the globalists Anglo-American empire. Um, so this is the thing about sanctions, okay? America has had the power of financial sanctions since having the world reserve currency. Sanctions are a military or economic coercive measure to force a nation to make corrective actions from what is deemed unlawful under international law, or in simpler terms, actions that are not in alignment with the globalist agenda. Our financial sanctions have the ability to halt a nation's ability to trade with other nations since our currency is mandatorily used uh, to make international transaction. So what am I really trying to say here? I'm reading from the article. So when it comes down to it, a sanction economically can be done by any nation. Uh, but in particular, when the U.S. makes a sanction on a nation, that can stop all element of trade with other nations in their neighboring area. Uh, it, it really kind of uh, suffocates a particular economy in a certain nation, depending on which one it is. And this can become a real issue. So what we've noticed is that these sanctions would start to happen not justifiably. Um, there are many nations in the world today and in the past that would veer away from globalist policies and what this idea of this new world order concept was. 
Um, and any nation that was just trying to get out of that situation and say, hey, I don't want to be a part of globalism. I don't. I believe in the nation state. I believe in having our own sovereignty, having our own independence. Look at Libya. Great example. If you study the history of what happened in Libya in 2011, it was the same thing. And I can go on and on. But this is this idea of sanctions that we start to we started to really use in the 1960s, and people were kind of looking at the world like whoa, uh, or looking at the U.S. really even, and 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 our actions in the world as of a, an abuse of power is really what it was. Um, and so just to be clear, a little bit more on sanctions, um, the enforcement of our sanctions has been viewed internationally as an abuse of power. They are so devastating to a nation because of their ability to cause famine, disease, and military devastation. Our sanctions can cut the food supply, medicine supply, military supply, and economic prosperity of a nation. Usually nations don't, who don't obey our rules can go into bankruptcy and collapse. This started with the Soviet Union, but extended to North Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Iraq, Iran, Libya, and many other nations throughout the decades. So this is what began that modern American empire, this concept of, oh, you're not going to follow the allies in, in America, and we're, we're just going to sanction your nation. We're going to starve your population. We're going to do things that are deemed as absolutely horrific, right? And that's the, that's the big telltale sign is the world is watching. And so moving on to the next key element here that happened in the, in the recent history that have tainted our world reserve currency status, which was when in 1971, Nixon took the US dollar off of the gold standard, okay? Um, President Richard Nixon took the US dollar off the gold standard in July of 1971 to mitigate issues with inflation and an oil crisis that caused nations to panic in an economic frenzy. And just to give you an example of, of how valuable gold was, at the time, gold was $35 an ounce. But as of today, March 30th, 2022, gold is priced at $1,944 an ounce. I want you to understand why this is. The dollar was pegged to gold during Bretton Woods and gold was uh, set at a unit price of $35 an ounce. Because of inflation and because of the printing of money and because of this panic that was happening around the world, like, well, we want our gold reserves back Nixon said, well, you can't get your gold reserves back with U.S. dollars because we would be giving you more gold than what the U.S. dollar was actually worth. Think about that. And that's why in a panic, Nixon actually was the one who made that attempt to try and change that, right? And so that's kind of what we're looking at here. So with Nixon taking that off, what do we what did we see immediately? That the U.S. dollar started to inflate the US dollar was not as valuable as gold, okay? That's what we're looking at here. So um, this is the birthplace of the modern monetary theory, uh, which is a macroeconomic framework that says monetarily sovereign countries like the US, UK, Japan, and Canada, which spend, tax, and borrow in a fiat currency that they fully control are not operationally constrained by revenues when it comes to federal government spending. Think about what I just said. 
This is this idea of modern monetary theory. And a lot of economists actually buy into this and think that this is a totally legitimate way to run a country for an unlimited period of time. But no, modern monetary theory is ridiculous, okay? It essentially says that a country, just because they print their own currency and manage their own currency, they can just print an unlimited amount and it'll never matter. And these are real economists that believe that, that they can just unlimitedly inflate a currency and print as much as they can because they never have to worry about a federal budget. They can just, they can give away everything, free healthcare, free college, right? It never turns out that way, right? It's never going to be that way. When they say free, it means controlled. That's a key thing. When they say free college, free healthcare, it means controlled college tuition, controlled healthcare. That means the government controls what college you can go to, what college tuition you can get, and, and what kind what college can even do for you, right? And what control over healthcare means is look at the vaccines, look at the hospitals, look at COVID, look at all this devastation that just happened, and people still want to jokingly talk about government-run healthcare. It means government-controlled healthcare. If they give it to you and if they pay for it, they control it. Just look at your dad on vacation. You wanted to do A, B, and C. It don't fucking matter because dad paying for the vacation. And so dad is going to call the shots and dad's going to make sure that he does whatever the fuck he wants the family to do. So just in that same fashion, what we've looked at over these years is that governments giving things away is always going to be an abuse of power. So uh, I'm going to continue reading here. What this basically means is that these nations, especially the U.S., are allowed to spend endless amounts of money without any consideration of how high the debt goes because they control their own currency. And in the case of the United States, the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency, which means they both they have both endless debt and economic world dominance. That is really something that people around the world look at as a total crazy lunatic idea. It's 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 a currency gone fucking rogue, okay? That's what the US dollar is. It's it's this idea that we can just continue to print money, we continue to inflate the currency, we continue to spend on all these di- different things and really it's a lot of just political class corruption and we could just continue living life like this as if this is not going to devastate us in the future because the US dollar isn't pegged by anything. It's a fiat currency and when we do owe all that money, it's going to mean the world to everybody. It's going to devastate people. So, The Gulf War, Afghanistan, Iraq War, Libya Revolution, Syria Revolution, the Ukraine War, and many other international conflicts. This is a very important aspect. These, all these wars were done by sanctions, right? Uh, Each of these wars were predicated by massive amounts of sanctions imposed by the American empire. And the reasoning for these various wars on behalf of the United States has become more and more about our, our corrupt politicians over the past decades. Our politicians, defense contractors, oil companies, and other corporations will attempt to make deals with political leaders in other nations, which may result in one party getting screwed over in one way or another. Some people turn their back on America and they, they kind of do backroom deals elsewhere. And then other people turn their, uh, America turns their back on, on, this, on these particular companies and nations that decide to agree to certain things, right? And so because of that, they're able to say, hey, we, wanna, we, we don't want to go along with this globalist agenda. Because what happens when, these, uh, when America comes in there 
they're always making deals and, hey, we want to do this, we want to do that. And it's always happening at the State Department level. Um, and I've talked about the State Department corruption. But th this is where they make these backroom deals. They loot that, that strong arm, which is the U.S. dollar. Uh, and and they, they make them in their favor. And then some people feel screwed over. So when they ever back out of something, it turns into a total mess. And that's when we go into uh, these proxy wars and other things. So when political and military leaders in these other nations feel that they are being taken advantage of, they rebel in some way. Sometimes it's big, sometimes it's small. And the rebellion, whether economically or militarily, results in retaliation in the form of financial sanctions. This is a total cycle. Uh, financial sanctions, I'm saying. And in some cases, military intervention on behalf of the United States and its allies. The sanctions usually are enough to change the course of a rebellion against the American empire, as mentioned earlier of the devastation they can cause. But when they don't get the desired results, the drum beats of war begin to sound in Western media. Just look at Ukraine today. America's advert adversaries have watched closely as we have abused power in this manner time and time again, and they've been patient in their desire to strike at the United States when the time was right. This is what we are experiencing today. In each of the listed conflicts, this process has occurred with precision. Some conflicts have had American military directly involved, while others were dealt with economically or through subversive means like our CIA, training a local population to revolt, which that happens, by the way, all over the world. That has happened after World War II since the creation of the CIA. We have overthrown so many different what we call regimes, but in reality could very easily have been defined as democratically elected governments in other nations. It is exactly what we did in Ukraine in 2014. So what I'm telling you about this stuff, look at the results. Look at things that are happening in places like Ukraine. These are the results of bad fiscal policy and bullying, might I add, by U.S. politicians using our world reserve currency status to try and destroy other nations. So where we are today, well, well, look at this. There's a lot of political things that have happened in the last six years. You've got populism with Trump. And with Trump, it's like you, you have the ability to create things. You have the ability to produce things. And you have all these different things happening on a positive note. So it shows you what politics really can bring to a particular country, right? So somebody like Trump was more of a populist. And then, of course, you get somebody like Joe Biden, which really isn't running the country. And you get this active sabotage on our nation. And you almost wonder why that is. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the changing world order is trying to subvert the United States. I believe that there are many globalist elitist figures in the world who would like to see the, the American dollar not be the world reserve currency anymore. And I believe that they are politically doing this in their way to reorganize the economic status of the world. So the most specific assault on the US dollar we've seen since the war in Ukraine started, I'm just giving the war in Ukraine a good example because it's very, very, very up to date. Um, the war in Ukraine started has been Russia's decision under economic sanctions to accept only rubles, which is the Russian currency, as payment for trade with Europe and India for natural gas. 
This is a huge retaliation that the U.S. hasn't seen in the past because any government that threatened to not use U.S. dollars for international trade transactions has been either invaded or overthrown. Now you see when Russia turns around and says, oh, you're going to sanction me and, and you're not going to, you know, be able, you're not going to, um, uh, send me goods or, or are able to buy goods from me. And these are, these are real countries who are, are going along with the sanctions, right? And they're saying, yeah, we're not going to buy goods or sell goods to Russia because blah, 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 because of what they're doing in Ukraine and the war crimes. And I get it. I get it. But look, are we prepared in America for their retaliation? So which they say, oh, okay, Europe, you have to buy my natural gas. You don't have the ability to go get natural gas in any other means. So how is it or how is it that you're going to uh, somehow pay me in terms of US dollars? It's like, no, we don't want US dollars. We want rubles. And, it, and actually just that announcement alone and that enforcement has rebounded the ruble. The ruble is now completely rebounded. And that's because of this decision, geopolitically speaking. It's insane actually to think, but the, the ruble is actually a very valuable currency all of a sudden, you know? I mean, again, it's, 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 only, it's like 80 or, or 70 rubles for every US dollar. So I'm not saying it's, it's super valuable. I'm just saying that like in terms of what they're looking to do, because it's gold backed. I mean, their currency, they have no debt in Russia, just so you're clear. They have very little debt in Russia. They have a balanced budget as a country. They have national security means of food production and war uh, and, and war materials and all the things that you would need to be sovereign and be on your own. Russia has it going, okay? Uh, and I'm not saying that you do, they don't need the world. I'm not trying to say they're isolationists necessarily. But what I am saying is that Russia has done a good job at actually putting themselves in a position where they could do something like this attack on Ukraine in their own way, they feel justified to do it because of the encroachment in Ukraine and the takeover of Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine is the breadbasket of Russia, okay? It is the breadbasket, right? And so at the end of the day, you, you ask yourself, look, this is what's happening now. I mean, this is what's happening. And why is this big a deal, you ask? Because if Russia is a major exporter of many goods, including energy, which is, by the way, vital, we call it a petrodollar for a reason. The US dollar is now is now attached not to gold, but to petroleum. But we don't even make our own petroleum unless Trump's in office for some reason. Why is that? Why don't we start getting our own oil supply? Because it's deindustrialization. This is what's happening. It's on purpose. It has nothing to do with climate change. It has nothing to do with, oh, we're running out of oil. No, none of that's true. We have plenty of oil. We have plenty of resources, natural resources. We have plenty of energy here. We just are artificially cut off from it. That is the cold hard truth that everyone needs to understand. Because of our attachment to the petrodollar, we have to produce petroleum. If we don't produce the very thing that we have our dollar attached to as a world reserve currency, we will lose our status as a world reserve. Just imagine the same thing that Nixon did when he took the US dollar off gold was because the US dollar coming in and gold leaving the nation was less valuable in a transaction. Why would we then have no supply of petroleum or not or cut off artificially cut off our supply to our own petroleum and our own natural gas when we have our dollar pegged to it? This is why we're at war in the Middle East constantly is because we protect Saudi Arabia. 
You know, this is the reason for all these problems. And if we could just really have our own petroleum and energy start there and then really start backing our dollar with Bitcoin or something else, that's the only way that any of this is going to change. So um, you see in America without Trump, we aren't producing anything anymore. So we aren't trading high commodity goods like energy and manufactured products. America isn't strong in their ability to produce much of anything because we have become decadent, corrupt, and sabotaged to rely completely on the U.S. dollar supremacy. So we have nothing. We're not exporting anything but our dollar. Does that make sense to you guys now? If we could at least produce stuff, make stuff, build stuff, really make an economy and a producer become a producer nation, we would maintain a world reserve currency status with no problem. But because we have pegged all of our prosperity to this idea of having a world reserve currency and then bullying the world by just, you know, anything that goes against globalism, we're going to sanction them, destroy them, starve them. Like that is not how America should be run because of all of these things is the reason why we are in the position we are today. We're being sabotaged, right? Our political class believed we could continue bullying the world with sanctions and our military power endlessly with no consequence. But as we see, the Russians, Chinese, Brazilians, Indians, and United Emirates forming an alliance in economic partnership, America's ability to continue leading the world with the US dollar is collapsing and i have a picture here of this alliance happening between all these different nations so what would it actually look like in closing what would the us dollar really look like this is a warning to every american to begin realizing the full extent of the disaster we are facing if the us dollar loses its world reserve status because our politicians have never made an attempt to pay down the national debt we will be beholden to nations like China, Japan, and many others who have bought massive amounts of U.S. bonds. The U.S. bond is basically an investment in the U.S. dollar itself that would produce a small yield of interest after five or ten years, depending on the term of the bond. The bonds act as reserves in order for nations to engage in international trade. This means foreign nations who have bought these bonds would have leverage over us if our currency were to ever collapse because we owe them their investment plus interest, we could see major aspects of our nation become collateral to foreign nations as, we, as a way to pay them back in real assets. Our natural resources, military equipment, technology, and land could be given to foreign nations in order to pay down our debt. This would be the same actions central bankers have taken in third world countries in the past. And now America would be in the same position. And I have a picture here of foreign holders of U.S. debt. And this is a huge you know, ball of all these different percentages, right? And so let's think about it. Inflation won't just be a word used by economists on television anymore. It will be a horrific reality for every single American. Inflation essentially makes a currency's buying power decrease because the value of the currency itself is depreciating due to an increase in the supply of that currency. Every time our Congress votes on the budget, they print trillions of dollars, which causes a steady increase of inflation. 
Well, when our dollar is no longer needed to make transactions around the world, nations will dump the currency for real value like precious metals or a new currency that is on the rise like the Chinese yuan. Inflation at that point will be hundreds of percent, not just the 3 to 10% we are seeing today, which is already terrifying. You see, as an American, we'll experience the cost of goods go so high in price that you won't even be able to afford food, energy, or common necessities. Unless you have real assets right now, you will end up in a terrible place financially. So I'm just kind of giving you that perspective. You have to hold on to real assets because at the end of the day, inflation is going to become a real thing that you're going to notice immediately, immediately the price of goods go up higher and higher and higher. So uh, here's the silver lining. The price of real assets will go up. So if you own a home, car, gold, silver, Bitcoin, storable food, land, agriculture, weapons, or any other kind of tangible assets, then those will increase in value tremendously. At that point, if you wanted to, you could decide to sell some goods for a different currency than dollars, which will be a more effective strategy than to sell your assets for the rapidly depreciating US dollar. As they say, the rich get richer. Well, in this case, if you own any of the previous tangible goods mentioned, then you may be rich when compared to someone who doesn't own anything, had a large savings account of cash, or just lives paycheck to paycheck. Not the best situation in society because there will be a guarantee of violence and collapse. So you'll still have to manage living in an apocalyptic, apocalyptic scenario. Uh, yeah, very interesting. And uh, look, I mean, this is happening. Uh, this has happened before. Zimbabwe is a good example. Very, you know, good African country uh, per capita. People lived good there. Middle class was good there. And then boom, all of a sudden, because of socialism and communism and policies that were destroying the nation's ability to make money, the nation's ability to even raise revenues, do all kinds of things uh, in terms of their own infrastructure, in terms of their own companies, inviting companies in. All these different things are important because of that collapse, the currency collapse and everybody's savings meant nothing. Their stock bonds, everything that they invested in meant absolutely nothing. So look, I mean, uh, in conclusion, really, my message to you would be to invest in real assets now. Get out of the dollar in every possible way. If you have a big savings account full of like, you know, five, 10, $15,000, you really should just start buying real assets. Hold on to a different currency. Even if it's Bitcoin or gold or silver, you should save, use your savings account in a more effective way. Don't be screwed over because if we continue even just the 7% inflation that we are in this month right now, that means that a savings account that you had last month you know, um, with a thousand dollars today, it's worth $930. I mean, you're losing money just by saving your money. So you have to start taking that money you have and buying real assets. Okay. And really I would probably recommend Bitcoin to be honest. It's, it's cheaper right now and it's only going to increase over time. Uh, if you don't agree with Bitcoin, then buy gold, buy silver. If you think that that somehow pegs your dollar to something valuable, then great. But I would say also what's valuable is for storable food, you know, have storable food ready for God knows what, because food is going to go up in price. Food is a valuable asset. These are things that could, 
be devastating if you didn't have them if the US dollar were to ever lose its current world reserve currency status. Um, and this could happen in the next two to five years. Um, this is really real right now. Uh, and we are facing imminent destruction economically. So that's my podcast for you guys today. We have to get through this. If you want to read the article I was referring to throughout this podcast, you can definitely check it out um, at my Substack Matrix Breakers newsletter, and I'll post it in the description in the podcast, in the description, and all the videos here. And I appreciate you guys tuning in. You guys are awesome. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.